This morning, we, uh, <clears throat> we kick off our next movement in our series, Pursued. So last few weeks, we've been kind of looking at creation, and this weekend, we are kicking off this new part, this new movement, this new phase, Fallen. And before we dive into that, I, I just wanted to reflect back on how many of you guys have ever enjoyed my good friend, Little Debbie's Cosmic Brownies. Anybody? Right? Some of the, like, probably all-time greatest little not healthy at all snacks that most kids have in their lunchbox, right? And I don't know about you, but I remember when I was younger and the occasional times where my mom would buy these or even the ones with the walnuts on them, right? Uh, oh, I know, seriously. And <clears throat> I was that kid, though, guilty confession again, um, where my mom would come home from the store and she would only take like one of us boys with her to the store because if you leave all three of us home, it's like bad news bears, Okay. So my mom would come home and the other one would come home and they would run in with this, one of these almost. And I was that kid who would tear it open and I would do one thing. I would just simply just absolutely dump them all out, right? And then I'd go and I would literally, I'm not joking, count how many of the little like chocolate chips are on them. And then I would stash away my top three that had the most chocolate chips on them because I'm that guy, right? Like I needed more sugar in my body, right? <clears throat> but these are so good because here's what, what I love about these cosmic brownies. You know exactly what you're going to get every time you open one of these up, right? You're going to get um, a brownie that is made to perfection. It's cooked all the way through. You're going to have the little chocolate chips on top. It's somewhat gooey, but yet not too gooey that it just completely falls apart. You still can hold it. It's firm enough, but yet it's not too firm. These are cooked to perfection every single time. When they make it at the Little Debbie factory, they make sure that all the right ingredients go into it. They mix it up appropriately. They make it perfectly every single time. Because that's what happens, right? When you follow along with the instructions and you go along with what is said and you don't add anything special to it or you don't do anything special, it comes out looking like it should and tasting like it should, right? A few months ago, though, I decided that I was going to attempt to make brownies here. And if you remember, I have some secret ingredients that I put in brownies. Personal favorite is Dolkalax. What would happen, though, if little Debbie decided one day that they were going to put some of this in their mix that they make this with? What would happen if they added this, Dolkalex, to the mix of the brownies? I can answer that for you. It's a bad idea. Your best friend is going to be something that you don't want it to be. See, if we add this, something that's not designed to be in the mix of a brownie, we get disaster, right? Or what if I decided that this, would, this brownie would taste really good with frosting, but I make the frosting out of this, Dolkalax? How good was that? I mean, this is mint flavored, like mint chocolate brownie, man. It can't be that bad, right? 
how bad could it really be? <clears throat> and essentially, if I'm being honest here, I, I think when I think about the way they make these brownies and if I mix Dokalax in it, I think sometimes that's the way we even view sin. <clears throat> how bad could it really be? Right? Even just a little bit? How bad could it really be? I think this is what the impact that sin has on our life. And I think the best way to put it is this way, is that sin impacts all of us, even in the smallest amounts. Sin impacts all of us, even in the smallest amounts. It doesn't matter, I'm convinced of this, even when I was making brownies a few months ago and I dumped some of this into the brownie mix, I took the bold strategy of tasting the brownie mix afterwards. Sin impacts us, even in the smallest amounts. And it's a true statement. Even in the smallest amounts. In Genesis 3, we get this. Before we dive into the text, you would, you would remember that in Genesis 1 and 2, we see the creation story unfold. God makes everything and he says that it is good. And then he makes man and woman in his image. And he says that they are very good. They are made in the likeness. They reflect God. And he invites them into essentially his dominion. He says, you will reign over the birds. You will reign over the land. You will reign over the animals. You will have dominion over them. He charges them with the, uh, the, the position to name the animals, to give them a sense of identity. And Genesis 3 happens then. And we understand that in Genesis 3, there's this moment where Eve has this conversation with the serpent. And when we read this conversation, we understand that the, the serpent looks at Eve and he goes, essentially, listen, God's given you all of this. Why, why would you not take advantage of it? And her response is, yes, God has given us all of this except for the tree, that one tree. And God has told us that if we eat of it, we will surely die. But what's interesting is when you read this encounter with Eve in the beginning of Genesis 3, it's intriguing to me that God never directly gives instructions to Eve. She gives them to who? Adam. Adam. And then as God gives the instructions to Adam, it's Adam, you must not eat of the fruit. If you go and read the text, Genesis 3, the beginning where Eve and the serpent have this conversation, she adds a little bit of a addition to God's command. Eve responds, God says that we must not eat of it or touch it. It's intriguing to me. It's intriguing to me that even before she takes this bite, even before she steps in disobedience of God, she's already changing the words of God. God didn't say you, don't, you can't touch it. He said don't eat of it. That was his command to Adam. And what's intriguing to me is that over all of this in this moment where Eve takes the fruit, polishes it off, and takes the bite, and then she turns to her husband and she gives him a bite as well. They discover that they are naked. 
shame. There's this sense also though of idolatry. Because Adam is elevating his wife's word, Eve, above God's word. And today I want to focus on the aftermath of that. We're going to dive in Genesis 3, 14 through 19. If you have your Bible or if you have your glow-in-the-dark Bible, a.k.a. a phone, open it up, go to Genesis 3 with me. This is what it says, Genesis 3, 14 through 19. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put anemone. I will create enemies between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. And then he turns to the woman, Eve, and he says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And then he turns to Adam and he says this, because you have listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all of the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. And by sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. What's intriguing in this text to me is what God says and how he goes about it. See, right before this, Adam and Eve take the bite, and then it says that they were filled with shame and guilt almost. So what do they do? They go and hide. They go and hide. They hide behind a tree. They hide behind a bush. And then it, we get this encounter where we hear God's voice. Adam, Eve, where are you? Let's remember who's asking that question. God, all-knowing, all-powerful, the one who created everything. God is asking man and woman, where are you? Like he knows. It's like playing hide and seek with my three-year-old. Right? We're going to go play hide and seek, and he hides behind this table like this. Even better yet is when he hides like this. (laughs) Essentially, what Adam and maybe Eve were saying is, if I can't see God, maybe he can't see me. Because if I cover my eyes, I can't see you. So maybe, just maybe, I disappear, and you can't see me. So, So I'm good now, right? right? If I don't recognize and if I don't acknowledge what's before my eyes and the sin and the brokenness, I don't have to deal with it. And it says that God is calling out to him and and we get this encounter where it says God is walking. He's not stomping around in the garden. He's not chucking trees to the side. He's walking calmly, Collected, walking. And then he turns to the serpent and to Eve and Adam. And he begins to just speak to them. And it's intriguing when you read this that before this, we understand that the ground would have only produced good. It would have only produced good. But then after this, the ground produces thorns. Bad. Things that can hurt us. Thistles. 
It still produces good fruit, but it produces thorns and thistles as well. And death enters the world as a curse. From dust you were, to dust you will be again. Instead of deliverance, instead of eternally with Jesus or God, now death entered the world. What's interesting above all of this, though, is as I was reading through this, as God looked at the serpent and then man and woman, God curses the ground and he curses the serpent. But he does not curse man or woman. Go and read it again in a moment. He does not curse man or woman. He curses the ground. He curses the serpent. There's punishments for Adam. There's punishments for Eve. Painful childbirth. Extreme labor. That's a punishment. Not fun one, I would imagine, by the way. Never experienced it personally. But I'd imagine it's not a fun punishment. And then man, the punishment is you will have to now work the ground. You will sweat for your food. Punishment. But when you look at the serpent, when you look at the ground, the ground is cursed. Now you will produce thorns and thistles. The serpent, now you will slither on your belly. And ultimately, serpent, you will get your head crushed by her offspring. It's intriguing because as I'm reading this and studying this, I think there's a reason behind why God doesn't curse man and woman. And I think it's because he, he intends to redeem them and restore them back to him. But the ground and the serpent, the devil, there's no plan for redemption for them. But there's plan for redemption for us. Sin impacts us even in the smallest amounts. It's almost as if when you first open this book, within the first three chapters, we understand that this whole entire book, especially the book of Genesis, is rated R from the very get-go. A few chapters after this happens, we see these two brothers start to fight when they present an offering, and one brother kills another one. This is an R-rated book from the get-go. If you want a Hallmark card, don't look here, because this is not it. It's going to get bloody. But there's also a lot of hope in this book. There's also a lot of redemption in this book. Because this is not a tale about tiny sinners who need a tiny savior. This is a tale about sinners who have fallen so drastically, who are so broken, that they need an all-powerful savior to come and rescue, redeem, and restore what was broken to what ultimately can be healed again. Adam and Eve choose selfishness over God. They choose themselves. In the, in the fall, in this moment, in the garden, man distorts the word of God. Woman distorts the word of God. They twist the word of God. The devil is a master at this. But did God really say that? But then what we see is, is years and years later, as Jesus comes, we see that, that Jesus redeems that. That in the moment, Jesus has an opportunity. The devil is tempting him. And instead of distorting or twisting the word, rather he quotes scripture directly. He lets the word of God flow from his mouth. It is written. It's his quote. Jesus uses scripture rather than twisting it. Why? Why is this so impactful and so important for us? It's because we need a, a, a savior to come and save us. Because the weight of sin that we're talking about 
is extreme. And it's a weight we can't bear on our own. Sin impacts us. Sin impacts us, even in the smallest amounts. It doesn't matter how much sin you pour in. A little bit is going to make a difference. And it will wreak havoc. Havoc on your life. I promise you that. If you don't believe me, drink a little bit of this before going and running a marathon. It will wreak havoc on your life. Sin impacts us even in the smallest amounts. And don't miss this though. There is hope. There's great hope. Genesis 3, it continues on a few verses later, 20 through 21. This is what it says. Adam, this is after God now dishes out the punishment. And Adam and Eve are about to leave and Adam names his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. In the midst of sin entering the world, in the midst of brokenness and death entering the world, God still provides for them. He gives them clothes to wear out of animals and fig leaves. He provides for them. What's intriguing in, in this it, for me is this, is that not only is Adam here getting punished, but he accepts it and he says, I acknowledge it. And he's leaving the garden. He accepts the penalty for sin. And in the midst of the brokenness, God provides even in the moments where Adam didn't obey. We see God working and providing redemption just a few short, short verses after addition out of punishment. You're going to have to work. Childbearing is going to be painful, but I'm still going to provide clothes for you. I'm not going to leave you to go out and just be shameful and guilty. I'm going to provide for you. And I think oftentimes we miss the bigger picture of the, this reality. We might even miss the bigger picture of sin in our own lives. The, the impact that sin in our lives has, not just for here and now, but even generations to come. Because I, oftentimes we talk about sin and, and oftentimes it's a very me-focused thing, right? But sin, and we understand that sin in my life also impacts future generations, a generational sin. Sometimes we try to explain it away, right, by Oh, well, you know what? Like, we just have that in our family. <laughs> our family is just really, really, um, we just really enjoy alcohol every time we get together. It's not a big deal. Our, our family, you know what? We have a lot of broken relationships in our family. It's not a big deal. It's just how it always was. And it always is. So we don't think about it. We just kind of push it away. We sweep it under the rug. But what if, though, what if, what if we understand and we, we start to understand that sin in our lives has generational impacts for years and years and years to come? We see this in the book of, uh, of the Bible. We see this in, in Genesis, in Abraham. Uh, I'm going through this book. It's called The Emotion, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship with our teaching team. Pete Scazzaro outlines just what it means to be an emotionally healthy disciple and how to cultivate emotionally healthy discipleship. 
And one of the biggest things this book has done for me personally is it, it has just shown me where God is moving and pruning in my own life. And in a lot of ways, God is like, yeah, you thought you had that down? Let me show you that you don't have that down. This last chapter we are going through on Tuesday morning, um, and there's something that Pete Scazzaro, and God's timing is perfect, by the way, right? Because we're talking about this message and this book, Pete Scazzaro outlines this exact thing, how sin impacts generations and generations and generations. If you remember the covenant with Abraham and God that God says to Abraham, I will make your generations as, as, um, as beautiful and as numerous as the stars. I will give you all of this stuff, blessings and blessings and blessings, which is great. And we love that. But do we also understand that Abraham's sin and his brokenness was also passed down generation to generation to generation? The blessings given to Abraham uh, because of his obedience passed from generation to generation. It passed to his children Isaac, his grandchildren Jacob, as well as his great-grandchildren Joseph and his brothers. But also Abraham passed on a pattern of lying. Abraham lied twice about Sarah, but then we also see that Isaac and Rebekah's marriage was characterized by lies. Jacob lied to almost everyone. His name itself means deceiver. And 10 of Jacob's children lied about Joseph's death, faking a funeral, keeping a family secret for more than 10 plus years. Or what about, what about this? the brokenness that Abraham passed down of favoritism by at least one parent. Abraham favored one of his sons, Ishmael. Isaac favored Esau. Jacob favored Joseph. And then later, Benjamin. What about the brokenness within family dynamics that the brothers cut off from one another? Isaac and Ishmael were cut off from one another. Jacob fled his brother Esau, completely cut off for years. And Joseph was cut off from his 10 brothers for more than a decade. About sexual sin, poor intimacy in marriages. Abraham had a child out of wedlock. Isaac had a terrible relationship with Rebekah. And Jacob, he had two wives and two concubines. We like to talk about the generational blessings. But what about the generational sins? What about the reality that sin impacts each and every one of us, even in the smallest amounts? From one generation to the next. And what's intriguing is when you read Genesis 3, you can also look ahead and, and read almost side by side in Romans 5. As Paul's writing to the church, he, he writes this, and in, in Romans 5, it's not going to be on the screen, but there's a direct correlation, a direct connection, Genesis 3, Romans 5, that because of Adam, sin has entered the world, and Paul reminds the people in Rome that sin has entered through the first Adam, in Romans 5, verse 12. And, and because of Adam's sin and death to all has entered, and then Romans 5, 15, Paul talks about this exact reality, that death for all of us, or how death reigns over everybody. What about men being condemned? Romans 5, 18. What about 
men being sinners at the core. There's a direct correlation. There's a direct connection between Genesis 3, the very first book of the Bible, and Romans right in the heart of the Gospels, right in the heart of the good news, right in the heart of the New Testament. We see this connection, Genesis and Romans, Jesus in the seed of woman, all interwoven and connected together. And what's even more intriguing is that when you read Romans and we understand that when it is being written, they understand the, the spiritual figures, the heads, the men that these spiritual figures would be talking about. David, Abraham, Jacob. We see the brokenness within them. All pointing directly back to one person, Jesus. As the first Adam brought sin, the second Adam is bringing reconciliation and redemption. Why? Because sin, or sorry, because Jesus, Jesus is the great reversal of Adam in the garden. Jesus is the great reversal of Adam in the garden. All the sin and the brokenness, Jesus is the great reversal of Adam in the garden. As Adam, when sin enters the world, tries to hide behind the tree. If I don't see you, God, maybe you don't see me. As Adam hides behind a tree, Jesus hangs on a tree for all men to see. As Adam casts blame, well, God, it's not my fault, it's the woman's fault. The one you gave me, by the way, right? As Adam casts blame of sin and then she casts blame to the serpent. God, it's not my fault. It's the serpent's fault who you created, by the way. Jesus receives blame that is not even his. And willingly takes the blame. As Adam sins, chooses self, Jesus redeems and restores and chooses others above his own life. Jesus is the great reversal of Adam in the garden. Sin impacts us, even in the smallest amounts. And we see it all too often, though. And let's be honest, I, we do it all the time. I do it all the time. I'm just going to be honest. We do the same thing that Adam and Eve did. We, we do this comparison thing. Well, my sin of taking the apple from the woman is not quite as bad as the woman taking the apple from the tree, right? Adam essentially is trying to compare, maybe. And maybe even Eve is trying to compare. Well, my sin of actually taking the apple and biting it well, he's the one who twisted it, so maybe his is worse. We try to justify it. We try to justify it. It's, it's like the man who cheats on his wife after 10 years because the nice, young, attractive receptionist makes a move on him. That is so much worse than the husband who goes home every single night and sneaks away late at night when his wife is sleeping to look at a certain website to get his fix. 
We compare those two, though. Uh, that one's much worse than this one. That one's just make-believe. Or, or what, about, what about the two people living in a homosexual relationship next door to you? Man, that is so much worse than the neighbors who each and every single Friday night get so drunk that they don't even know where they're sleeping. It might be on the floor of their couch. Maybe it'll be in the bed. I don't know. We compare sins. That one is so much worse than this one, though. What about the guy who has a tether on his ankle and he can only go within so many miles of his house? That is so much worse than the teenager who is continually lying to her parents. Lying to her parents about the, the money she keeps taking from their wallet. We try to justify our sin. The weight of my sin is no match for the weight of your sin. Or maybe vice versa. Your sin is so much worse than mine. <laughs> I can feel a little bit better about myself. We categorize it. We rank it. And I think when we try and do that, what we do is we try to say, well, just a little bit of sin in my life is not as bad as if you have a lot of sin in your life. We forget that sin impacts us even in the smallest amounts. And I know for some of us to hear that, that that's really frustrating. But I think there's a gentle reminder that we are all a bunch of different looking sinners in need of the same looking cross. We are all a bunch of different looking sinners in need of the same looking cross. As a... Uh, as we close today, as Josh comes up, this is where I want to end. That we are all a bunch of different looking sinners in the same, in need of the same looking cross. That the sin that I walk in in my life may look differently than the sin you walk in. And the sin that you walk in may look differently than the sin of the person to your right, to your left, may look differently than the person watching online than in, in person here. But over and over and over again, God has recently been reminding me that I am in need of his great grace and his great love each and every day of my life. That even in my life, when I look at the sin and the brokenness in my life, that even if it's just a little bit, it has a great impact. And oftentimes when we talk about sin, when we talk about this brokenness, it seems so heavy. Can I be honest? It's because sin is heavy. It's a heavy weight we weren't designed to carry. And we try to just keep it. We try to just plow through. Ah, instead of looking at it every night, maybe I'll just look at it three times a week. That's better, right? It's not as much. 
Over and over, God has just been showing me, though, that the more I try to handle my sin, the more I fail. And he keeps reminding me that sin doesn't get the final word. That he does. But in order for me to trust that final word, I just have to open my hands and turn my life to him. Give him control of it. I have to stop trying to control my sin, control my life, and say, God, I I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm broken. But I know you have the final word. I know you know exactly what to do to make my life exactly how you designed it to be. So Lord, I'm going to stop trying to add ingredients to it. I'm going to stop trying to add things that I think I need in it. And I'm just going to trust your plan to make it the way you designed. Because his grace, his love, his mercy pursues us. And all we have to do is trust his plan over our own. In the garden, when Jesus reverses what Adam did, it's this beautiful image. The beautiful image that God is redeeming what was broken and bringing it back to him. The way you live bears the fruit of what you believe. So if you believe that God can redeem what was broken, what was lost, what was harmed and beat up, then you can live and you should live a life that models that and shows that. But if my life is showing that I don't trust God's word and rather I trust my own, the fruit is going to be evident in that too. So simply put, simply asking the question today, so what do we do with this? What do you do with the weight of sin? Maybe my question to you and for us is this, is what area in your life are you doubting and letting sin impact your life and what you believe about God? For Eve, it was, well, did God really say that? And so for maybe for some of us today, it's that, did God really say that he has a plan for me? I'm going to doubt that. So I'm going to have the, I'm going to grip the, the idea that I'm going to control my life. God wants a healthy marriage for me. I don't know if I can trust that. My marriage is not fun right now. So I'm going to hold on to this sin instead because this makes me feel good. What area in your life are you doubting God's word? And you're putting an idol above him. Idol of sin and brokenness. The good news is this, is you can seek repentance today. You can find hope in the cross today. You can come to him and say, God, I am a sinner. I am broken and I am lost. Would you forgive me? Would you take my sins, Lord? I confess that you are God, that you died for me and that your son Jesus rose again from the grave so that I can be restored to you. And it's not just some magical prayer. It's not like something magic. You're not going to grow these fairy wings or something. It's this moment where our hearts are positioned before God and we acknowledge our brokenness and sin and acknowledge that he is the only one that can redeem us. And today is never too late to start that journey. 
Maybe you're sitting on your couch right now. Maybe you're in here and you've never made that decision to follow Jesus. Today is never too late to start to follow Jesus. Maybe for some of us, we've made a decision when we are five years old and, and we are being nudged to take another step and to rededicate and to remake that decision today. Today is never too late to, to make that decision. So during this next prayer, I just want to invite you. I want to invite us to close our eyes right now. <clears throat> and I just want to pray over us. And in the middle of this prayer, if this is, if this is a prayer that you need to say today to, to put your faith and your trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to say it. I want to invite you to, to pray this prayer, it, whether that be internally, whether you're at home and you want to pray it vocally or verbally, whatever it might be. If today is a day where you want to put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to do that today. And so there's going to be a moment during this prayer where I'm just going to kind of walk us through that. And I want to invite you into that. Father, I give you thanks for today. I give you thanks for what you've done and thanks for what you will do, Lord. And Father, as we just dive in, as we talk about, as we talk about the brokenness of sin, the weight of sin in our lives, Father, I ask that you would, in these next few moments here, that you would, you would remove the weight of sin on our lives, Lord, as we come before you, as we turn away from our brokenness and our sin and our shame, and we walk into your presence, Lord, would we find hope? Would we find love and acceptance, true love and true acceptance in your name and your name alone? And so today, if, if, if you want to put your faith and your hope and trust in Jesus, if you want to give your life to him, I want to invite you to just to pray, Father, I know I'm a sinner. I come before you broken, lost, knowing that you can give hope, that you can redeem and restore my life to you. I believe that you sent your son to earth to die for our sins, to rise again so that I can be restored before you in heaven. I give you my life. Lord, we pray this in your name, a name that redeems. The name of Jesus who came and reversed what was done in the garden, knowing that we can be restored back to you. So we confess our sins, Lord. We throw them down at the cross, knowing that you look at us and you welcome us into paradise, into your presence, Lord. So Father, I pray that you would just continue to stir in our hearts and in our, our lives. Give us opportunities, Lord, opportunities to see you and to trust you. Lord, we pray this in your name, a name that is above all other names. Amen.